A reading from the first book of Kings. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Go now to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there, for I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he set out and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the town, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel so that I may drink. As she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am now gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home and prepare it for myself and for my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Do not be afraid. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The jar of meal will not be emptied, and the jug of oil will not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. She went and did as Elijah said, so that she as well as he and her household ate for many days. The jar of meal was not emptied, neither did the jug of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. The word of the Lord. A reading from the first book of Kings. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Go now to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there, for I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he set out and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the town, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel so that I may drink. As she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. Only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am now gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home and prepare it for myself and for my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Do not be afraid. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The jar of meal will not be emptied, and the jug of oil will not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. She went and did as Elijah said, so that she as well as he and her household ate for many days. The jar of meal was not emptied, neither did the jug of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord 
that he spoke by Elijah. The word of the Lord. Sally and I have recently returned from several, several weeks in Europe. For the month of October, we were so-called visiting researchers at the Brochet Foundation in Geneva. They take academics with doctoral degrees in biomedical ethics, and they were interested in the proposal I had sent them concerned with an aspect of our work in rural Malawi villages. There were several Australian researchers there, some Germans, a Brit, and the two of us. Most of these folks were considerably younger than we, and several had recently finished their PhD degrees and were interviewing for faculty positions at one university or another. It will be exciting to see if Lucas Engelmann ends up teaching at Johns Hopkins. Torsten Heinemann will be at a university in Frankfurt, his young wife at the University of Leipzig. The British woman is at the University of Bristol and the Australians at universities in Melbourne, Canberra, Adelaide, and Tasmania. More than a few in our group said they were influenced by Sally's and my work in international health, working as we do in Central Africa. The point of all this is to say that these young researchers were so bright, highly trained, sincere, gracious, not a pompous person among them, and all but a few of us were at that exciting moment in life when they could do just about whatever they wanted and they needed to make a decision. How will I live the next several years of my life? This is, of course, the stewardship question, and it was so exciting to see it being wrestled with by such interesting and talented and nice young people, all in plain view. The stewardship question is, how will I steward my very life? For reasons I'll never completely know, I, of course, ended up in the church. I have found it easy over the years to wave goodbye to a lot of religious tales, accretions in Christian lore that once were quaint and fun to believe, but when I think about them, they now seem a bit childish. But even so, the figure of Jesus of Nazareth or the God hypothesis, so distorted down the years, so blurry, is still my anchor in life. I need some kind of orientation around which to center my life. And if I don't center it on the man for others, I could all too easily center it on myself, possibly on going forth to fill myself 
with more money, more this, more that, more, more, more. But how tedious would all that be? Being a steward of one's life means taking personal responsibility to orient the self towards some pole star having the potential to impart meaning, validation, consequence, a direction I can believe in and find to be valuable and sustaining. As I said, for me, it is the blurry figure of Jesus. If not to him, where else would I turn? In July 1984, Sally and I were in a tiny village somewhere in East Anglia. We were visiting a friend whose husband had recently left her and their three little children. On a Sunday evening, we went to an evensong service at a tiny Anglican church down the street. This place had stood there, nourishing the generations of people in that village since the 12th century. There were seven others on hand for the service. We met the older man at the door who was to officiate. He was very kind and asked where we were from, and we told him California. He turned out to be David Hand, the retired Anglican Church Archbishop of Papua New Guinea. He was an extraordinary man. He died in 2006. You could find him and his remarkable story online. During the service, anyway, he prayed for the church in California. Then the homily began. He told us that his grandfather and then his father were priests, and he became a priest while one of his brothers became a Franciscan monk, and the younger brother got married and had three sons. The archbishop told us next that his younger brother one day lay dying as his oldest child was baptized by our preacher on the father's iron lung so the father could see his son's baptism. When this boy, the baptized, turned 13, he was confirmed by his uncle and at that time made a so-called rule of life in the back of his new prayer book. And he told our preacher that he would one day ask him to ordain him a priest, since he had already baptized, then confirmed him. The bishop did not encourage the youngster to feel influenced by the heavy lineage of clergy in his family. But the boy did very well in school, later received a scholarship to Oxford, and read theology and philosophy in preparation for ordination. Upon graduation from Oxford and before his ordination preparations started, 
he did a year of free time in Australia and one evening was killed in a car crash there. The bishop, his uncle, <coughs> buried him. Afterwards, among the young man's few possessions, the bishop found his prayer book, the one he had been given at his confirmation. On the last page, the rule of life had been filled out. The last item had to do with giving. He had divided that into two parts. He had written, number one, 10% of my possessions. Number two, my life to God. The bishop concluded his homily. He said, if you give your life to God, 10% or any amount of your possessions doesn't really matter anymore. Your heart burns with a zeal that changes everything. And you needn't live any longer by rules because something has happened. You are transformed. Sally and I and seven other people heard this one evening in a tiny English church in a small village called Ciderstone 28 years ago, and I've never forgotten it. That little church had survived from the 12th century because the people in that village had taken care of it down the generations. So Sally and I and those seven others could hear a true story filled with life and promise, but sorrow and terrible loss, and also bravely picking up the pieces and moving on. I think of the people in that little place who have had to do the same time and time again for generations. Those other seven there that night, what wonders did they know and what terrors? And there they were, listening and learning in the presence of the divine and of each other. My life to God, that is the ultimate act of personal stewardship. It is committed in a community that has lasted for over 2,000 years of people who depend upon each other and upon a transcendent power for good. But for all that, one that does not exempt us from suffering that harms us. During this fall stewardship campaign in St. John's Church, we could do much worse than to remember the good that came to people here and take our turn to sustain this place as so many others did before us and so many will after we are gone so that other people struggling through good and bad will have the chance to hear true stories of hope and courage and commitment as we do and possibly give their lives to God.